Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, Aaron Andrews. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Erin is a social entrepreneur, innovator, and philanthropy expert. Her background includes founding and leading Give Team, running a research lab at Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society focused on effective philanthropy, leading GuideStar's nonprofit strategy and managing the largest database of nonprofit information in the world, and starting a nonprofit to identify high-impact organizations. So this is all about giving, philanthropy, you're an expert on the donor side, as well as the entity side of of conversation. So I'm excited to kind of get into it. Let's start with kind of the work that you've been doing at Stanford. It it involved researching wealthy donors, understand their motivations and challenges. But, you know, what were the big kind of takeaways after that analysis that you did? Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you again for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, the work that I did when I was at Stanford, really, I was trying to understand high capacity donors, wealthy folks, and figuring out the what challenges they have and what needs they have around charitable giving. And so my research there, there were a couple of really interesting takeaways. One bit of work I did was trying to understand if donors were really giving unrestricted gifts to nonprofits. That's a really big challenge for a lot of organizations receiving restricted gifts. And the research that we did, we found, yes, the donors, in fact, were giving unrestricted gifts, and they seemed to understand why that was the case. We interviewed nonprofits as well. And on that side, we asked them, is this still a challenge for you here in the Bay Area? We're in the Bay Area in California. That's where this particular research took place. And most of the nonprofits we spoke to said, actually, no, we're, we're getting unrestricted gifts much more than in the past. And so we're happy about that. I asked them, why is that the case? And they said, well, we're asking for unrestricted gifts and we seem to get unrestricted gifts. 
So that was a really important takeaway for nonprofits out there. If you ask for it, you're more likely to get it. And that was one of the trends and shifts we were seeing. The other was around multi-year funding. We wanted to understand this is another challenge that nonprofits have if they were getting multi-year support. And the nonprofits I spoke to said, nope. And this was one of the big areas that they were really lamenting as some of their older donors were aging out. Where were they going to find new supporters? How were they going to engage those and get multi-year support? So that was a a pain point for those organizations. On the donor side, we asked, oh, donors, do you give multi-year support to any of your community-based organizations that you're supporting? They said, no, we don't. You know, nobody's, nobody's ever asked us. And so we haven't. Oh, well, I give to my university. They ask me every reunion to give them another five years of support. So that was a pretty, pretty big aha moment because on the nonprofit side, I said, well, do you ask donors for multi-year support? No, no, we don't ask for it. So here again was a good learning where if nonprofits need that multi-year support, coming up with ways to structure them, possibly piggybacking off of the ways that or universities do it with multi-year campaigns. So that was one thing I learned. The other thing that I learned that really led me to my work today with Give Team, my organization that I launched about a year ago, was really understanding that progression of donors and, and sort of where donors are in their journey. Most of the donors I was interviewing were largely reactive in their giving. They would go to college, they would give to their college. They might run a race and friends would give to their race and they'd give to people's races. They might go to a cultural institution and they would give to those. They might get married and have kids and send their kids to school and their kids, then they would fund their kids' school and the zoo and the museum. And after a while, as they're earning more money, they're giving away 10, 20, 30, $40,000. Some give $200,000 without stopping to think about it. And it's really common. Lots of folks give this way, but some at some point feel like, gosh, isn't there more I could be doing? There are other things I care about. So what I really was understanding through a lot of this work was how can we help donors who are giving reactively, who want to be more intentional? How can we help them get to that place? I found that they really need three things in order to move toward intentional giving. The first thing they need is they need to know what they want to fund on purpose. So is it education? Is it, you know, women and, and, and girls? Is it, you know, environment? Then they need to know how much they can afford to give and what the right giving vehicle is. Is it a donor advised fund? Is it, you know, a, a family foundation? Is it cash? And lastly, they need to know which organizations are available for them to fund that align with their goals. So those are just some of the takeaways and a lot of that work really led led to the work that I'm doing today as well. I'm curious to dig in a little bit more on the unrestricted side. You know, Mackenzie Scott has really highlighted this concept and I'm not sure people who aren't in the nonprofit or donor world understand. When I first joined the family office space, it was almost 10, 15 years ago, the idea was we don't want to just give to this bucket of capital, right? Mm-hmm. This just this fund that we don't have any transparency into. But now the pendulum has seemed to swing the other way where we are, people like Mackenzie and others are empowering the nonprofits to be able to allocate the capital resources where they feel like they're best spent. So could you maybe unpack that a little bit more for people who aren't living and breathing in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate the, the, the double clicking on this particular point. So unrestricted giving is the lifeblood of organizations. If you think about it, these are entities. They are businesses. They might not be for profitable businesses, but they are nevertheless 
They have to run an entire operation. They have to hire people. They have to offer them benefits so that they can retain their great employees. They have to give them an office space or provide them with laptops that work. They might need to rent space to provide services to children. They might need to make photocopies to allow those kids to be able to do the work they need to do. And to restrict your dollars going to those groups means that those administrators, those leaders don't have the full ability to manage their budget in the way that they need to. And there's no way that we as the donors are going to have enough insight into how they should be running their, their business and how they should be spending that money. So yes, we, we want to make sure that they are thoughtful about their finances, but we shouldn't be micromanaging and looking over their shoulder for every penny. We want to really find organizations that have great leaders and are really thoughtful and can hire and retain great talent and are really effective at running their programs and then trust them with those dollars. In the same way that, you know, you might have a plumber come to your house, you're not going to, and they, they charge you, you know, $400, you're not going to pay them, you know, 300 and say, you can't use this on your gas and you can't use this to pay your insurance and you can't use this for these other types of, of costs. You're paying for the entire service. And that's the same with the nonprofit sector. Yeah, I think it's not fully appreciated by people. And that's why the importance is on that upfront diligence. And then once you get comfortable to be able to allocate that capital and, and allow them to do it internally as they see fit. One of the things that you've spent time on or focused on is this differential between the 1% and everybody else. You've got that top tier of donors that you've done some research on. I think we all hear about the giving pledge and these big numbers that get thrown around by these ultra affluent individuals and families. And then we, as many listeners do, understand the, uh, the annual fund at your private school or the giving that is just part of your social network. But there is a big in-between there that doesn't get spoken to very often. So I'd love to hear your experiences and what you found there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I think when we as a society think about philanthropists, we're thinking about the big names. You mentioned Mackenzie Scott or the Gates or, you know, any of these really big billionaire philanthropists. There's also just a large number, though they're not that many compared to everybody else out there. The top 1% of givers give away millions of dollars each year, upper hundreds of thousands to millions and millions each year. And for those that we hear much more about those, financial institutions gear a lot of their services toward those types of individuals, families. They often are ultra high net worth folks. We hear a lot about them and their needs around philanthropy often are more complex. They're, they require higher touch, customized, bespoke kinds of support. They might have multiple charitable vehicles. They might hire staff. They might need to pay for research and, and expertise to be really thoughtful about giving away such large sums of money. And that's, that's important work. We also hear a little bit about the everyday givers. Americans are generous. The vast majority of Americans are giving away money, time. They're supporting human beings. They're supporting organizations. They're rounding up at the grocery store. They're supporting their kids' schools. They're buying Girl Scout cookies. You know, most Americans are incredibly generous. And so we also hear a little bit about those everyday givers. But what I found with a lot of my, my work at Stanford is there was a segment of, of givers who there are many of them and they give at pretty high levels, but no one's really talking about them or focusing their services or support around them. And these are the, the donors who are in the top 2 to 10% in terms of annual giving level. And that equates to about giving away 
200K per year down to about 10K per year. So that's significant money for a lot of organizations. That would be those would be incredible donations that nonprofits could receive. There are many more donors who fall into that category than the top 1%, but their needs are different. They don't often think about themselves as philanthropists with a capital P. They don't wear that hat in the way that the top 1% might. They don't sort of think of themselves in that way. So if you approach them in the same way as the top 1%, sometimes it can be overwhelming. They don't necessarily want lots of meetings and multi-gen conversations and 50-page reports, and they can be overwhelming because the the need isn't quite the same. But for those top 2 to 10%, they still could use a lot of help. And, And that's really the segment that I saw as often being reactive in their giving, sort of not knowing how to be more intentional writing checks because they have capacity. These are high net worth folks. These are ultra high net worth folks. They many of most of them are millionaires plus. So there's a lot of generosity, a lot of capacity, a lot of intent, but not a lot of support because most financial institutions, if they do offer in-house philanthropic support, really are just catering their services to the top 1%, which you can understand most financial institutions really are just focused on that top 1% of donors. And it makes sense because they have the largest accounts, the largest AUM within those firms. They need the highest touch models. They want to retain those clients. However, most of those financial firms also have lots of clients and donors who fit into that top two to 10%. And it's just a big missed opportunity to not be talking to them about philanthropy in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And and it makes total sense. I mean, I know that's the case for our family. We we are, you know, considered affluent. My wife says a family office, but compared to some of these headlines that you see, we don't nearly have the same amount of zeros in our giving structure or our family foundation. So this is where your company comes into play, right? This is the issue you saw in the marketplace and you're providing a solution set to this problem. So maybe go into a little bit of how you all work, where you work within the financial advisory ecosystem and and what exactly it is that you do. Yeah, that's great. So one of the things that in the work that I did, I realized that I really think financial firms and financial planners and advisors are a key part of this solution. Individuals, clients expect to talk to their financial advisors about philanthropy. It's the right place to have those conversations because it's about money. It's about their finances. But many financial institutions just don't offer this level of support. So the way that we structure our work, Give Team, we're a philanthropic planning company. Financial firms hire us to support their clients in-house. So we sort of boost the philanthropy services for those firms. So they might still have philanthropic advisors on staff to support the top 1%, but they can bring our firm in to support those additional donors who aren't quite reaching those ranks for that highest touch support. The way we support these clients is we first walk them through an hour reflection session where we understand where they've given in the past. We walk them through a values-based exercise to help understand what they care about, what causes, communities, values, motivations they have, and they come up with a family mission statement at the end of this session. We also ask them questions to understand their personal preferences. Every donor is unique and they have different things they care about and different priorities. So that's an hour. Then we bring the financial advisor in to talk with them about their budget and their vehicle. And that's what the advisor is most uniquely suited to do. That's what they know best and that's what they can advise on. So they work with the client on that. And then my team produces deliverables, including 
a really lovely presentation of organizations to consider funding based on their priorities. So maybe they want to fund education and environment and mental health. So we might come up with three or four options for organizations in each of these categories where they can think about supporting those groups. We help them right-size the gift. We provide them with all the information they need to make those gifts. We tell them about the organization so that they can get to know them and think about which ones might be the right fit based on their priorities. And in this way, we're able to help them move toward action and help them move from just intent to action. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. So, you know, as I was preparing for this conversation, reviewing some of your notes and your writings, it is really interesting, you know, in the family office world, it's just table stakes that you've got a family foundation and that there's resources to understand how to give and everything from venture philanthropy to double bottom line impact investing. And so there's a whole ecosystem around it. But when it comes to just the kind of high net worth individual or family world, your financial advisor is usually very separate from what your giving is. The giving happens around the kitchen table. Your financial advisor has, you know, your quarterly meetings or monthly meetings. Why do you think that is within kind of the financial advisory space that giving has been kind of kept at arm's length up until recently? Yeah, well, it still is a little bit arm's length in many cases, and I'm hoping to shift the needle on that. The reason I believe that is financial advisors, the reason why they're so successful is because they build trust with these relationships with their clients. Next to their spouses, they are the most trusted person in that client's world. And that is worth its weight in gold. So advisors are not willing to not look like the trusted expert that they are. And for them, philanthropy usually is not their deepest area of expertise. And so it doesn't feel as comfortable to talk about philanthropy because they don't necessarily know all the ways to support clients beyond charitable tax deductions and vehicles and things like that. I spent a lot of time developing trainings to help teach financial advisors how to walk their clients through this values-based exercise I mentioned. Because for planners out there, they're used to having those touchy-feely conversations and holistic planning and understanding their clients' needs and desires. So I would train financial advisors on how to do this for their clients. And the ones that would go out and do it, they would come back and they would say, that was amazing. I can't believe we did that in 30 minutes. My clients loved it. I know so much more about them. It was meaningful. It was deep. They have a purpose now. But then I would hear from them, oh, and then they asked me, now what? And I've got nothing else to offer them. So I'm never going to do that again, essentially, because they could have that conversation. They could talk about budget and vehicle. But the third thing that those donors need are now actually to find organizations to fund aligned with that strategy. And I found that most financial advisors aren't willing to help their clients come up with a plan that they can't help them execute on. And if you can't find those organizations to fund, your plan is just going to sit there on the shelf. The money's just going to stay in the DAF, the donor advised fund, and not get out the door. And that's not really doing society any good. So that was one of the big hiccups that I saw because finding organizations to fund 
is really quite challenging. There really aren't easy ways to do this. And what many folks end up doing is just giving to the big name groups that they've heard of because they think that's safe and that should be fine. But there are really so many more, you know, organizations out there that really where that impact could be even greater felt. And for many financial institutions, they aren't even allowed to recommend nonprofits if they happen to know. It's a compliance, it's a liability issue. So most firms can't get to that place. And so they kind of just back off the philanthropy conversation. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels here between other folks that had on the show who are in the financial therapy space where mm -hmm. it seems like financial advisory is facing some challenges. Fee compression, technology, AI, machine learning, you know, it's become very commoditized. And so there has to be a value proposition beyond just the asset management story of it. And that's where the giving and the philanthropy can be a big growth opportunity for these firms, especially considering this massive wealth transfer that's occurring. And yes. I think some of you have had the show recently said that 80% of wealth transfers, the younger generation chooses a new financial advisor. So there's this yes. huge place where they could step into this void and provide real value for these clients. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I've just added some notes to some of the talks that I give around this wealth transfer because it's so critically important. So let's zoom in on that for a second. The numbers that I have are over the next two decades, about 80 trillion are going to be passed on to younger generations. So yes, millennials, when we think about this wealth transfer, the vast majority of wealth is going to be transferred to millennials and Gen Z over the next two decades. And it's really important to understand how they are oriented. They're incredibly values driven. They're socially conscious, socially minded. This pervades all the different aspects of who they are from their personal life to their work life. And it's just a very important part of who they are. And so if advisors are able to connect with them, especially around philanthropy, that is an amazing doorway into that relationship. In one recent study, I saw 75% of millennials consider themselves philanthropists. That is huge compared to 35% of baby boomers, three quarters of millennials. That's an, a very significant number. So the other piece of this, and this is what I've been hearing from financial firms, is philanthropy, they really do see as this next value add. They are hearing from clients, whether they be, you know, at all the different generational levels that, yeah, well, you know, there's a fee and you're charging based on assets and we've been with you a few years, but now what? Now what value are you adding? And for most firms, philanthropy is sort of next on that list. So you combine that with Who's going to be getting that wealth? It's the millennials and Gen Z. And what do they care about? Philanthropy absolutely better be on your menu of offerings in order to really connect with those individuals. So the question here is the same that we talk about for on the show about financial wellness or financial therapy. If you're a client or a prospective and you're interviewing a manager, what are the questions that you need to ask to make sure that this is not just a marketing gimmick, that these people actually know what they're doing, that they can be helpful with? you're giving or with your philanthropic efforts? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. So as, as a prospective client looking around for different financial advisors, especially around um, philanthropy, most firms, when I, I've been on so many financial firm websites to try to figure out who's offering what around philanthropy, and many firms will say they offer something around philanthropy, but usually it only scratches the surface in terms of estate planning, tax deductibility, 
charitable giving vehicle like donor advised fund versus family foundation. Absolutely, financial advisors and firms should have that expertise. What you want to look for is the advisor who will actually help you come up with a charitable plan beyond just like a true strategy. How you, so you'd want to ask questions about how do you support clients around philanthropic planning, holistic philanthropic planning? And if they answer just with, well, we do estate planning and we, you know, can recommend different charitable vehicles, you want to dig deeper because really what you want is a facilitated conversation where these advisors can help you unlock and figure out what that charitable purpose is and then help you execute on the plan. So few institutions out there can actually help donors find those organizations to be funding. And so they just can't completely get donors across the finish line in that way. So those are some of the things you'd want to dig deeper beyond those tax, just those tax related questions. Yeah, super helpful. So thanks for for going there. Maybe we could kind of take a step back. Industry trends, what you're seeing in terms of in the giving world. I mentioned some of the hot button, you know, words that are thrown around a lot in terms of venture philanthropy and impact investing. What do you see on the horizon? What do you see coming next in the giving space? I love watching what Mackenzie Scott is up to because I think while billionaire philanthropy, there's lots to talk about there. There there are good things. There are not good things. But they do give us a lot to think about. And what Mackenzie Scott is doing is she really is painting a different way to, to do philanthropy. Now, to those of us in the field, her strategy and her approach is not new. We would, many of us would call these best practices. It's just they haven't been put on the front page and lifted up in this way until someone like Mackenzie Scott is has started giving in this way. What she's doing really is, you know, finding organizations, not requiring them to jump through a bunch of hoops, giving them massive unrestricted gifts and saying, keep doing the great work that you're doing. Her latest effort is allowing organizations with smaller budget sizes, apply for grants from her of a million dollars, and there will be a participatory process involved. So folks from different communities are going to be able to weigh in. That's, again, not new in the field, but definitely new in the public field in terms of participatory philanthropy and how can we bring the voices of those closest to the challenges that are trying to be addressed? How can they be brought into the decision-making process? So when I work with donors and clients, I try to teach a little bit about this and also provide them with opportunities to give in these various ways if that is a good fit for them. But I love watching what Mackenzie Scott's doing and plus wanting it from where I'm sitting so that others can hopefully follow suit. Yeah, I mean, the numbers get thrown around a lot, but my wife is actually on a board of a nonprofit that received a gift from her unsolicited. Like nobody had any contact with her or their office or with her directly. And it's been life-changing for them. It's allowed them to have an endowment and to do all these other really interesting, cool things. And it's incredible, you know, and it wasn't even a you know huge gift in, in, the, in the scheme of her world, but it is remarkable the impact that she's been able to have. Yeah. And we had, this is exactly what we try to promote at Give Team as well, where we are doing the work to find the organizations for the donors and then giving them the info that they need to feel confident in making that gift. But it's an unsolicited gift. These nonprofits have never heard of these donors. There's never been a relationship there. 
We're telling them give about this much and they're writing those checks. They're making those donations. So we have one client who just said, yep, we're going to go ahead, move 40K from my DAF. Just give it to this one group. Never met this group before. Ask nothing of them. And now all of a sudden they have an amazing new donor and haven't had to work for it, which means they can spend that money on programs and doing the great work, not fundraising, which would make for a better society. Yeah, there's also, it's it's not, in, in, you know, it's not considered like the effect that that has on other givers and somebody like her writes a big check to an organization that highlights other individuals and, and families. Oh, well, if she thinks that they're worthy or if she's yeah. done their diligence in this organization, it's just a huge check of credibility that they can then go use to raise more capital. That is a phenomenal point. And that's actually a critical part of donor psychology. So this was something that I also really looked at at Stanford and led to part of the way I structure our model at GiveTeam, which is exactly that when we are recommending nonprofits for these individuals, we are recommending nonprofits that have been funded by other thoughtful, reputable funders, thereby piggybacking off of the due diligence and vetting that they've done to really you know, identify these different groups. So there are some shortcuts that donors can use if they, I mean, let's not please put all of these organizations through a, you know, 100 page due diligence process or whatever it might be. They've already been doing it for other funders. Let's leverage that's what's already out there. Aaron, if if people listening are in that top decile, but not the 1%, right? We're talking about families or individuals that give north of $100,000 all the way down to $1,000 a year, $10,000 somewhere in this broad range, what are the biggest kind of takeaways or or what should they take from this conversation to keep in mind as they move forward with their own giving experience? Yeah, I think the thing that I would most like to inspire that segment of donors is to say it's not that hard to put a little bit of thought and effort to really think about what you care about. And there are so many great organizations out there that are aligned with what you care about and are doing that great work. It can feel very intimidating to spend the time to think about which communities do I care about, what issues, what causes, but spending just a little bit of time articulating those priorities can provide you as the donor with permission to say no to all of those additional requests you might receive because now you have clarity about what you will fund on purpose. And that is a a huge weight that a lot of donors feel when they go through this type of process. So if you've been one of those reactive donors, that's okay. But maybe talk to your partner or just spend some time thinking 30 or 40 minutes one night. What do we care about? What do we want to fund on purpose? And how are we going to look for organizations that can really use those dollars? Hopefully financial professionals can help them in this process, but there's a lot donors can do on their own to just move a little bit more toward that intentional giving. It's terrific. Well, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. For all of our listeners, please do leave a comment, a review, a rating. Let us know that your favorite part of the conversation. Aaron, if folks are interested in learning more about the work your firm is doing or connecting with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, so our URL is thegiveteam.com. And I'm also happy to have anybody reach out my email address is Erin, that's E-R-I-N-N, at thegiveteam.com. And I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for having me and for listening today. Awesome. One question we do ask everyone that comes on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your lives? Oh, 
That's a great question. I would say, yes, I would say the daily practice I have is relaxing in the hot tub every night because it is the one time that I can just let all of the stresses of the day go and just bring calm to my evenings. That's awesome. That's the first hot tub we've had as an answer. Okay. <laughs> I hope <laughs> it's just, okay. I no, that's I... terrific. That's awesome. Good for you. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Well, Aaron, I look forward to staying in touch. Best of luck. I know you guys are growing like wildfire. I hope it continues. It's much needed in this space. And thank you again for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 